Amen. I've noticed there's been a great uh, discussion from behind this pulpit in this service today about having to do with you living for God and the testimony that you want to have versus the testimony that you don't want to have. And that's what I'm going to be talking about a little bit today. We're going to be continuing our series through the book of Galatians. And uh, at this point in Galatians, the Apostle Paul is getting more into, maybe for lack of a better phrase, the practical side of Christian living, the practical side of the gospel. The book of Galatians uh, successfully does three main things. It defends the gospel, it explains to us what exactly the gospel is, and lastly, it teaches the believer, the Christian, not the lost person, but the Christian, how to apply the gospel's power to your everyday life. And friend, let me tell you this, you and I have been saved by the gospel, and it's by the gospel that we live our lives. The blood of Jesus Christ has given us access to the power of the Holy Spirit. Meaning that whereas we used to had to have learned the hard way that we cannot rely on our own ability, our own strength, our own knowledge, our own wisdom, our own understanding. I think I've already said understanding, but I don't know. Now, being in Christ, we have access to the power of God. We have access to His strength his knowledge, his wisdom, his understanding of all things, and it's that understanding, that strength, that power, that wisdom that we are to be depending upon. I was once talking with a dear brother in the Lord, and uh, we were talking about the book of Romans, and y'all be praying before I forget about this. I'm, uh, I'm seeking the Lord because I've, let it, I've made it known in the past that when, whenever we're finished with Galatians, I feel that the Holy Spirit is leading uh leading us to begin studying Ephesians after this, and I've been wondering if the Lord wants us to go through Philippians after that, and just recently I've been seeking the Lord about whether or not He wants us to just simply go, start going through the New Testament, uh, one passage of Scripture after the other, because we need to understand God's Word. It doesn't matter how many years we've been saved and how long we've been reading our Bible, I need to know God's Word and so do each and every single one of us, uh, regardless of how smart we are or how wise we think we are. We need to know God's Word and I encourage all of you to be praying with me about that, whether or not the Lord wants us to just go through the New Testament. Uh, so just be seeking the Lord about that. If we do that, there are going to be a couple of books in particular that I'm a little weary about going through. Two books in the New Testament that kind of intimidate me, and these books are the book of Revelation and the book of Romans. Revelation, uh, for obvious reasons, most books in the Bible address things that have, 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 that have already happened or things that can happen right now. Revelation deals with things that are just about totally in the future. And that study of the last days, the scholar word is eschatology. And man, there are so many different um, ideas and doctrines when it comes to eschatology. You need to be very careful when studying that uh, subject. And the book of Romans is literally uh, Christianity condensed into one book. 
and you could either get that very right or you could get it very wrong. So please be seeking the Lord with me about that because in and of myself, I cannot teach you a single word out of this book, but by his power and by his ability, we can do all things. Amen. I was talking with a dear brother in the Lord about the book of Romans one day a few months ago or longer than that, a while ago, maybe last year. And uh, we were talking about how the book of Romans mostly teaches me about how to do the what to do, how to live a successful Christian life, and emphatically pointing us to simple faith, continued faith in God's redemption plan, Jesus Christ and his finished work. And I just mentioned in passing how that is what the book of Romans is about, and we're led in our faith to actually live out our salvation. The Holy Spirit wants to lead us to live out what we know and what we've experienced in Christ. We ought to live a changed life. And really, that's the note that the book of Romans ends on is actually living for God instead of just believing that you can live for God, actually doing what the Bible asks us to do as fruit, really, of our salvation. Sister Sue talked about it just a little bit today in her teaching. Um, to which this brother in Christ um, said, yeah, but, you know, Paul was talking a lot more about how to live for God than actually living for God. And I just kind of thought to myself, what does that have to do with anything that I just said? I mean, you know, before Paul was talking about how to live for God in Romans, he was talking about God's wrath against the nation. So I might have talked more about God's wrath because Paul talked about that before living for God or how to live for God the fact is you and I ought to whether you're called into ministry or not you and I ought to preach and live out the full counsel of God and much of that involves you actually living for God by the power of the Holy Spirit so in these last two chapters of Galatians Paul begins to talk about the fruit of the Spirit but before he talks about the fruit of the Spirit he talks to these Galatians about the fruit of the flesh, and that's what I want to be talking to you by the help of the Holy Spirit today, the fruit of the flesh. If you're in Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to begin in verse 16. I'll give you all a second to find that. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. If you're there, say amen. 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 Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul writing, he says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Amen. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, he continues in verse 20, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revilings or, or revilings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And you may be seated. The fruit of the Spirit uh, is a very important 
subject to deal with when it comes to Christianity because the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul lists them out in Galatians, is uh, they are the characteristics of a child of God. But before we talk about that, Paul talks about the fruit of the flesh, just as the evidence for living, uh, as the biggest evidence for your relationship with God is how you simply live out your life and how much of your life aligns with the scriptures, what they make out a follower of Christ to be. Uh, just in that same line of thinking, the fruit of the flesh is just as evident for those who are not walking in the spirit. So with the help of the Holy Spirit, it's a difficult subject to talk about because of how close to home some of these hit for us, including myself, but it's the Bible and I've got to preach it and we've got to believe it and we've got to be cautious about how we live our lives because this is what the Holy Ghost has given us to know. So by the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to be talking today about the fruit of the flesh. Will you pray with me, please, Heavenly Father? God, we thank you so much for this day you've given us, God. Even though it's been storming like crazy and it's been raining like crazy, we can still trust in King Jesus when the storms of this life gather all around us, Lord. Whether those storms are physical or spiritual, God, we know of whom we have believed this morning. And I'm believing today that you'll make this word uh, real to us, God. Anoint my lips that I may minister what you'd have me preach, God. Anoint each of us that we may receive what you'd have us receive today. And Lord, we thank you so much for that great sacrifice you gave to us 2,000 years ago at Calvary's cross. We look to the cross of Calvary this hour, and we bless your name for all of it. And all of this we say in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. How a person lives their life is evidence of what they believe. I said it a couple of weeks ago, uh, talking about fellowship, that I brought up that old phrase that people don't really say anymore. Uh, some of you have heard it, you are what you eat. Y'all have heard that phrase before at some point probably. And that phrase has a lot to do with influence. You are what you take in. You uh, surround yourself with a certain group of people. You begin to think like them. You allow a certain philosophy to influence you. You begin to affirm that philosophy. And you begin to live out what said philosophy tells you to do. A lot of it is very psychological based. A lot of it is uh, rooted deep in uh, secular psychology. But at the same time, it's for reasons like that, that God has made commandment number one... You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods besides me. Because God wants to lead you and guide you, lead me and guide me throughout this life. And the only way that he can do that is if I constantly live by faith in him. Another word for faith is dependence, trust. I have to trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for me 2,000 years ago because I have nothing without him and without his finished work. I don't have the Holy Spirit without the cross. I don't have a great big, a bombastic, if you will, revival without the cross. I don't have sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost without the cross. I don't know God without the cross. That's where my new life begins and that's where I stay because that's where God meets me at the foot of Calvary's cross. That's where I meet the Lord, and that's where I stay. 
And Paul has been talking about that all throughout the book of Galatians. I mean, the big point of Paul's ministry in the New Testament, as we know, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just for the lost person, but for the saved person. The gospel is not just saving power, it is Christian power. It's sanctifying power. It's the power that makes us into who God wants us to be, children of God. And there's evidence for that. There's evidence people shouldn't... Well, let me rephrase that. There are more ways for people to tell that you are a child of God than them just asking you and you saying, sure. But there is a life that follows the salvation experience of a Christian. And that's what Paul is talking about. Because the cross, the power of the gospel, is very manifest in the child, in the life of the child of God, as is the case with the sinful flesh. If you believe the gospel, you will live out the gospel. It's an automatic thing. It's a natural process because the Holy Spirit is making you and I into a new creation. That's how the Bible describes it. Really, we became new creations the moment we got saved. But sanctification, actually living out your salvation, is a progressive process. It's not as instant as some denominations make it out to be. And we don't teach the idea here that you and I can at some point become sinlessly perfect here on earth as long as any remnant of the sin nature, as long as any remaining sin presence is in our lives in this world. But we do believe that the Holy Spirit progressively, one day at a time, deals with the sin problem in our lives. You and I should naturally become more godly and less sinful the more we know Jesus Christ because of what the Holy Spirit is doing in us, not necessarily because of what we do to ourselves. We can't depend on our own methods. we got to depend on God's method, and God only has one method, and that's get in the blood. That's God's method. So to live out the gospel is to live out your salvation. It's to submit yourself to the sanctification process. You have been saved... From the dominion of sin, you should be experiencing victory over sin in your life. This is evidence that somebody is a child of God. Now, Paul says that, so if you don't believe in the gospel, then you will not experience victory over the sin in your life. If you don't believe in the gospel, you don't have access to the spiritual benefits that a child of God has access to. Anybody who doesn't know Jesus Christ cannot say that they have victory over their sin. Um, I was talking to somebody about it this last week. Uh, we think a lot about rehab centers, and I support rehab centers 100%. I, I know that they have their place in the world and in this country. But how often do we see people go to a rehab center, they leave, and for maybe a short time, they are off of the drugs, off of the alcohol, but soon enough, they get hooked back on these things. It's not because the rehab center has failed. I'm not going to say that. It's just that the problem that mankind has is a lot deeper than what Fox News and CNN are making it out to be. There's a bigger problem than wars that man fights against man. This is all very spiritual. It's not, um, 
Let's see. I've, I've heard people talk about the race problem in America, and you've heard this as well, that it's not a skin problem, but it's a sin problem. And that's exactly what it is. There's a heart problem that only God can truly solve. The issue is that we don't want to give our problems to God, but that's not what uh, really what Paul is emphasizing in this text. Evidence of the gospel is the life of a Christian. You don't work your way to believing the gospel. You believe the gospel, and then you live the life of a Christian because of the work of the Spirit of God in your life. Now, let me say this. I'm not trying to sound repetitious this morning at all. That's not my goal, and I'm not here with the whole uh, repetition is the best teacher uh, philosophy, although that, that is true in many cases, but... You know, I've noticed as we've gone through this book of Galatians um, that maybe some of you have been the same way, that there have been times because the big emphasis here in this book is without a doubt uh, justification by faith, salvation. That is Paul's main message to these Galatians. And, you know, chapter one, it's justification by faith. Chapter two, justification by faith. Chapter three, it's justification by faith. Chapter four, justification by faith. And sure enough, in chapters five and six, you see remnants of that justification by faith message there. Because that's Paul's message to these Galatians who have sold out the gospel to go back under the law. And sometimes I've caught myself thinking, you know, this is wonderful, but I... You know, this is becoming a little tedious. Honestly, I wish that we could go on to something else. And the Lord has dealt with me about that. The fact that I've had these thoughts is evidence that I need Paul to be talking about justification as often as he is. Because salvation is not just some non-specific, generic, religious stuff. It is the most important doc it is the most important doctrine that you and I are ever going to believe because you don't get to heaven if you're not saved. So salvation, justification by faith, what it means, what's the role of the Holy Spirit in these things. It's important to talk about these things. And actually living for God cannot be accomplished if you and I don't have a hold on what God wants us to believe in. It's impossible with misplaced faith. But proper faith and the proper object leads to that life of, as they say, victorious Christian living. And Paul is identifying here what victorious Christian living simply does not look like. He says that the, that the flesh and the spirit are at war. Uh, weeks ago, I preached a message uh, as I felt the spirit uh, compelled to put a pause on this Galatians series. I preached out of the book of 1 Samuel. When the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant and they put that, uh, they put the Ark in the temple of one of their idols, uh, fish god by the name of Dagon. And when the Philistines had left the Ark in this pagan temple, they left and the next day they walked in and they realized that Dagon, that statue had absolutely just crumbled to the floor. And then they put the idol back together, they left, they came back the next day and it was just back there on the floor because God will not cohabitate with a false idol. Amen. False idols are totally of the flesh. And in that same vein, the Holy Spirit is not going to cohabitate with the dominion of sin or the dominion of my flesh. It's not going to happen. 
the ideas of the flesh and the ideas of the spirit are at war because the ideas of the flesh are sinful, the ideas of the spirit are Christ-centered and holy, and these cannot cohabitate with one another. They just can't. The flesh and the spirit are at war. Paul would say in verse 18, if you are led of the spirit, you are not under the law. And to these Galatians, what that brings light to is the fact that if you are led by the law, you are not led by the spirit. You cannot expect to be taking your advice, getting your standards for holy living from the law of Moses and expect at the same time to be in the spirit, to be led by the spirit. And the reason for that is because God wants you to depend on him personally, not even a system that he might have personally established. Just as it was the issue with the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Samuel, the real reason why God had allowed the Philistines to steal, of all things, the Ark of the Covenant was because the Israelites were placing their faith into Ark to win a battle against the Philistines, and they did not have their faith in God himself. They had their faith in a godly thing, but that does not help you. That does not help you. Faith in church attendance does not make you a better Christian. Faith in communion does not make you a better Christian. Faith in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it's bizarre how alien much of the Pentecostal church is to this, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit never made anybody a better Christian. That's something that God does personally. You and I cannot have our faith in a godly thing. We ought to have our faith in the Lord himself. That's the faith that God is calling you and I into. The issue between the spirit and the law is about faith. What are you believing in? What are you depending on? If you depend on the law, which is godly, it was made by God, but it is not God himself, and therefore it does not have the power that only God has. So if you believe in the law, you don't believe in God, and if you don't believe in God, you don't experience the power that only God can give you over the sin in your life. So the issue is about faith. If you trust in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, there will be naturally produced evidence that you are a child of God. If you trust in the law, you don't have the power of the Spirit working through you. But in his place, you are operating by the abilities of your own sinful flesh. And let me just make light of this. You cannot serve the law and the spirit. You cannot serve the world and the spirit. You cannot serve the desires of your flesh and the Holy Spirit at the same time. Sister Jan taught about it last week that you can't serve God in the world. There is no such thing as in-between Christianity. That does not exist. That is no such thing. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And that word mammon is actually an old generic Babylonian term that means anything at all. You either serve God and absolutely nothing else, or you simply don't serve God. In other words, Jesus Christ doesn't save people who are only half sold out. That doesn't happen. Jesus doesn't save anybody who gives half of their life to him. 
Jesus desires to be the Lord over your life. And to Lord over something implies direct, total control. It has never happened. There has never been such thing as a half salvation, a half sanctification. Because nobody has ever tried to serve God and the world and lived in eternity to tell the tale of how they did that successfully. You either serve God or you serve absolutely everything else except God. That's what Jesus says. That Those are the red letters. That's what the Son of God said himself. There is no such thing as an in-between Christianity. And if you have no Jesus, you have no spirit. And if you have no spirit, you have no power that comes with being a child of God. And just as the works of the spirit are evident in the Christian life, so are the works of the flesh. And the Apostle Paul gives us what we would probably call today just a laundry list, this very long list of fruit of the flesh, evidence of the flesh, things of the flesh. Before he talks about anything else, he talks about adultery. That's the first sin that he brings up, adultery. Uh, this is, for obvious reasons, it is sinful. It was always sinful. You, adultery was never something approved in God's eyes. And we all know what adultery is. Uh, adultery is whenever a uh, spouse cheats on their spouse with someone else. The Bible teaches, Paul would write to Timothy and he would say that if anybody who was in ministry commits adultery, they disqualify themselves from the ministry. And I know that uh, some of us, let, let, let me just say this, there is restoration in times like this that only God can bring. Whenever somebody commits adultery, and we've seen examples like this, Somebody commits adultery, but then God brings total restoration in that family. It does happen. But for that time as it happens, adultery is seen in the eyes of God as such a serious thing that any preacher or any minister does it. They're not qualified, at least for that time, to be behind a pulpit because it doesn't give a good example to the congregation, to the rest of the church. It's a serious thing. And it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about because of how often it happens, especially in this country. But regardless of how different one person might be from the other, God has never changed and his views of sin have never changed. Adultery is still adultery. Paul would say in the New Testament that the system of marriage, godly marriage between one man and one wife, is a mirror of the church's relationship with Jesus Christ. He talks a little about it. In Ephesians, and the system of marriage and Christianity garners a lot of controversy in this day and age, and understandably so, but you have to look at it through a godly perspective. That We know it's not a secret. The Bible teaches that a uh, husband is the head of the house, that the husband is over the wife in a godly relationship, and that the wife ought to submit to her husband. And the parallel is that the husband loves the wife just as Christ loves the church. The wife submits to the husband as the church submits to Christ. Uh, that's the system of marriage, and there's a great illustration there, there should be at least in every Christian marriage, of the great relationship between Jesus Christ and in the church, the husband is called to love his wife sacrificially. If it comes down to it, the husband ought to be willing to lay down his life 
for his wife, not out of obligation, but simply because he loves her that much. And he is called to lead the family. And ideally, the husband is the main source of bread. Well, we know that God is, but as God uses the family, the God or the husband ought to be the main source of the food on the table, the reason why there's hot water and electricity in the home. It's the husband that has a bigger responsibility to work for his family than the wife, or especially the children. And the husband in Christianity shouldn't do that out of obligation, but because he simply loves his wife and his family so much that he is freely willing to do these things for them. It's not out of obligation. If it were obligation, it would be law, and law is not the way of righteousness in the eyes of God. And uh, talking about obedience, there's the thing with the wife being submissive to the husband. That's not to be enslaved. A husband cannot make his wife submit because at that point it's not submission. Submission is a willful thing. It's a voluntary act. And how submissive a wife is to the husband, that's totally between her and God himself. Nobody can make anybody submit because that's not biblical submission. And just as the church is submissive to Christ, the wife is submissive to the husband. So as uncomfortable as this is, Paul still, or at least as uncomfortable as it would be to the world, Paul parallels the relationship between a husband and his wife in Christianity as the relationship between the church and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if anybody uh, commits adultery on their spouse, in type, according to the Holy Spirit through the Apostle, that is basically saying, uh, giving an image of Christ uh, adulterating against the church or the church adulterating against Christ. And for very obvious reasons, this is very important um, in Christianity. And it makes me nervous talking about it again because of just how often this happens. I mean, but it's just the way that things are. But again, God's word has never changed. God's opinion of adultery is the same right now as it was 2,000 years ago. That's just the way that it is. But then again, let me remind everybody of this. There is a restoration that can happen when that happens. We've seen restoration happen in situations like this. But it's a restoration that can only be brought from God himself. Only God can restore what's been broken in the marriage. But that's not what Paul is talking about. Secondly, Paul talks about fornication. He talks about after that uncleanness. And I believe Sister Jan quoted, uh, uh, I believe, that quote from, uh, a quote from John Wesley uh, last week in her teaching. And uh, you know that phrase that you hear, cleanliness is next to godliness? We know that phrase, uh, that's actually, that, that phrase is not in the Bible. It's not a verse in the Bible. It was a quote that John Wesley gave many years ago as he and his brother were founding what's now the Methodist denomination. And it's not to say that if you are dirty, you will go to hell, but it does mean that a part of the Christian life is cleanliness. Um, the idea is simply presenting yourself as pure. It has to do with that. It's a very practical way of looking at Christian purity. Very, very practical. In the Old Covenant, a lot of the law that the Israelites specifically would have to follow, a lot of these laws were sanitary laws, keeping themselves clean. And this was just a part of keeping them separate from the rest of the nations because, you know, sanitation now is so much more thorough than it was in the ancient times and the filth 
that you would see in some of these ancient civilizations was just uh, remarkable, I guess. But God was calling the Israelites to be a clean people physically, and that's because, well, but partially. Uh, it, was because, it was for the sake of their physical health, but it was also to mirror what God wanted to do uh, to them spiritually. Just as they were to keep themselves clean physically, God was trying to keep them clean spiritually, separated from the idols of the world, the spirit of the flesh, things like that. So cleanliness is good. And then he, and then he uses this big word, lasciviousness, if I even pronounce that properly. I, look, I have to look that up, what lasciviousness is. And lasciviousness, yeah, lasciviousness actually refers to a sexual behavior or conduct that is crude or offensive or contrary to local moral standards of appropriate behavior. Uh, so basically to the world, something lascivious is measured by the standards of the world. I remember at some point uh, somebody in California either last year or the year before that tried to. I think they failed miserably, which is good that they did, but Somebody uh, recommended passing a law in that state that would not make, I guess, pedophilia totally legal, but kind of be a precedent for that um, to the point to where a grown man can love uh, anybody that he wants to, even if this was a child. And it goes back to this false view of love in our world today. Love is love. Look, friend, love is not love. Our standard of love we ought to get from God. It's reasons like this why the Bible doesn't say love is love, but it says God is love. Amen. But that recommendation, that law failed. Uh, I'm glad it failed miserably, but, you know, it's just symptoms that things could be a lot worse in this country if the church doesn't do something, if God doesn't move in this country. And, you know, right now, it's the standard, the moral standard in America that incest, pedophilia, all of these things are terrible. Even though this country has sold out still to other things that are sexually immoral in God's eyes. But the fact of the matter is this does not mean if the Lord tarries that our country will have the same moral standing a decade or two from now, for all we know, a decade or two from now, I read an article, uh, I think yesterday, that was advocating for uh, the legalization of incest relationships, uh, specifically incest relationships between two men who were also homosexuals. So they were related and they were also homosexuals. And, uh, you know, the popular thing against that right now, incest, is that it shouldn't happen. But again, the further a nation rejects God, this does not mean that we'll have the same view of incest a decade from now that we do now. When you leave God out of this stuff, you your view of morality will become progressively evil and demonic even. And it's for reasons like this that in the eyes of God for everybody, something lascivious is measured up by his word, not the subjective opinion of the world lasciviousness, a big fruit of the flesh. Paul then talks about idolatry, and we already know about that. Uh, God says, very first commandment ever officially made was that you shall have no other gods before me. If you put anything in your, if you put anything before your relationship with God, whatever is at the top 
of your list of influences. That is your main influence, and therefore it will have more influence in your life than anything else. And God wants to have the most influence in your life. He doesn't want you and I to just be selling ourselves to every wind of doctrine, everything that this world has. God wants to be priority number one, and it's not just Him being selfish. This is for our benefit. This is so that we can have a solid foundation in this world, so that we know what we're about, so that we know where our true identity is found. The whole identity dialogue in America right now, it's crazy because a lot of people just don't know what to think of themselves. A lot of people don't know who they are. A lot of people question if they should be a boy or if they should be a girl, regardless of what they were born as. But in Christ, there is a very objective identity in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. And that identity is holy, it's godly, and it is righteous. Paul then talks about witchcraft. And that's something that you know we may not see uh, that often, or at least we don't think that we see that often. Um, in 1 Samuel, whenever Saul, Israel's first king, disobeyed God, rebelled against God, at one point the prophet Samuel approaches Saul and he compares the sin of rebellion with the sin of witchcraft. And I've always just found that to be interesting because witchcraft is a sin that's uh, frowned upon in many religions. Uh, Christianity isn't special in its views on witchcraft. A lot of religions have this very low view of witchcraft. Uh, Islam discourages witchcraft. Witchcraft is a sin in Judaism. Um, and that's because whenever you indulge in witchcraft, you are literally depending on the forces of Satan. You're depending on the kingdom of Satan specifically as the source of your power. And... You know, our view of witchcraft here in America, it's very dramatic. I mean, we watch things like Harry Potter or Hocus Pocus where witchcraft isn't really a, uh, an actual connection to the devil. It's more portrayed as kind of a superpower in the way that we know it. But that's not what real witchcraft is like. Uh, it's not fun and games and a good, good story where you root for the good guy to defeat the bad guy. Witchcraft is literally depending on the powers of Satan for uh, your strength and your ability. I went to college with a friend, and I've told this story before, uh, a friend who, uh, who was born in the nation of Kenya. He was raised in America for mo most of his life, but he was born in the nation of Kenya. And he can remember, he gave him a testimony one time, uh, how he remembers growing up. And apparently witchcraft is very dominant in that nation, um, Kenya. And he says that he remembers whenever he was a very little boy how the witches or the people who did witchcraft living near his house, they would always try to spiritually torture him. They would always pray to the devil that Satan would torment this boy uh, and he, he would be harmed very physically. He, you know, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of... Uh, suffering that he could remember going through because of what these people casting or uh, practicing witchcraft would try to cause on him. They would try to harm him. They would try to send demons to his house. And he says that the demons would try very, very hard to attack him. But his mother was a Christian always. This is why the witches would try to torture his house. Uh, his mother was all because his mother was a Christian. And they wanted her to stop, renounce her faith. 
in Jesus Christ, but what his mother would do, instead of renouncing her faith in Christ, she would just plead the blood of Jesus over her son. And you know what? Hell never got this boy. He's a Christian today. He's living for the world because the name of Jesus has dominance over the forces of darkness. So there's not a single problem. I heard a couple of students talk the other day about bipolar disorder. And a lot of, uh, you know, the whole mental discussion about the whole mental illness discussion in the church today, I don't really like it. Uh, I believe that mental illness is a real thing. Uh, I guess not all Christians do, but that's uh, their opinion. Um, you know, bipolar disorder, it's a real thing. I believe in it. But at the same time, there's not a single problem that King Jesus can't solve, regardless of what the problem is. If it's physical or if it's mental, give it to the Lord and he'll help you out with it. Andre Crouch wrote that song years ago. If I didn't have a problem, I wouldn't know that God could solve it. All right. So he talks about witchcraft. He then talks about hatred. He goes from witchcraft to hatred. And man, the church needs to talk about this one because it happens a lot more in the body of Christ than we might realize. You know, hatred is literally satanic in its origin. The first example chronologically of hatred that the Bible gives us is Satan's hatred for God. So to hate somebody, which is the total opposite of love, to have this almost wrathful um, judgment, condemning judgment attitude against anybody, that's not godly in the slightest, friend. God's love for you saved your life. Yeah. If God operated on the basis of his hatred, there's not a single person that he'd ever save. But God's love literally saved your life. And mirroring the character of God, mirroring the characteristics of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ should be a loving community. That's not love that's dictated or defined by the world, but it is the saving, supernatural love that is dictated and defined by God Almighty. That ought to be the love that the church operates in. Paul talks about variance. And I looked this up in the Greek. Variance refers to strife or contention. Metaphorically, uh, variance can refer specifically to a conscious desire to hate or have strife. So, it's a different thing than hatred. I suppose you can hate somebody without really knowing or planning on hating somebody. Hatred can be just a natural thing. It's still sinful, but hatred could be something that just comes to mind, and it could be this almost instinctive thing, almost like muscle memory. It's just something that some people do out of nowhere, whether they premeditate on it or not. But this variance, what Paul is talking about, I dare say is actually worse than simple hatred. Because to have variance on somebody is for you to consciously know that you hate them and to continue hating them anyways. And that is absolutely despicable. It's bad enough that many in the world do this, but why would a Christian do it? Amen. Especially for another Christian. This is absolutely demonic, you guys. We think that when it comes to demon spirits, it's just about witchcraft and uh, uh, shooting lightning out of your hands, whatever the Sith and Star Wars do, but it's not that. It's influence. It's dictating how you think. What, Satan wants to change how you think. 
God wants to renew your mind because it needs to be renewed. My mind needs to be renewed from this world to his mindset. But Satan wants my mindset to remain exactly the same as it was before I knew Jesus Christ. Because Satan wants me to hate people. Satan wants me to hate the church. Satan wants me to look at the church, identify the petty people or the fake Christians, whatever you want to call them, and leave the church because I'm just not having that. And that is sinful. That is the characteristic of Satan himself. Paul talks about variance, hatred. He then talks about emulations. I looked that up in the Greek too. It's a masculine noun, and it means to be hot or fervent. It has to do... It has to do with a zeal that somebody has. It's more general of a term than uh, I realized, but it can be used positively and it can be used negatively, apparently. But whenever it's used negatively, like in Galatians 5.20, emulations refer to envy, jealousy, and anger. This is not fruit of the Spirit. I've seen people do this. There is a righteous anger that the Bible does talk about. God gets angry at things. There is a godly, righteous anger. Whenever you see somebody feeding false doctrine to an entire group of people, doctrine that is sending that whole group of people to hell, and you just kind of think in your heart, this does not have to happen. Why? Why is this happening today? And you're kind of angry about that. There is a righteous anger to have. Uh, but there is an unrighteous anger to have. And what I fear many Christians do is they have that unrighteous anger that could be linked to jealousy, hatred, malice. But for some great semantical way, they say to themselves, well, this is righteous anger because this is what God doesn't like. And it's just clothing. It's ignoring sin in your life. And if you ignore the sin in your life, you're never going to give that sin to God, and God's never going to be able to deal with that sin to begin with. There ought to be not a greater realist in this world than a child of God, because we know what sin looks like, and we know what forgiveness looks like, and we know what judgment looks like, and we know what grace looks like. We know how to identify these things because the Holy Spirit, through God's Word, makes them so obvious to us. And whenever we see sin in our life, our first inclination, and it's weird, I've seen so many Christians do this, especially over the last four years, just to be honest with you. Whenever there is a sinful attitude, they try so hard to justify it, and what happens is they keep that attitude. They keep that sin because they didn't give it to God, and God never dealt with it because they never trusted it with Him to begin with. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging the sin in your own life because when you do acknowledge it, you can seek the Lord, not just forgive, not just for forgiveness, but for change. So take no shame in acknowledging your sin, but give your sin to the Lord. Like I said, sanctification is living out your salvation, and it's a progressive process. Sister Sue said a second ago, she's not perfect. Friend, not a single one of us in this church is. Nobody's perfect, but we are a work in progress by the power of God. Amen? Amen. So Paul talks about heresies. Heresies, that's very obvious. If it is not right doctrine, it is not God's doctrine. And if it's, if it's not God's doctrine, that means it is either the doctrine of the world, the doctrine of the flesh, or worst case scenario, doctrine straight from the devil himself. And that is, for obvious reasons, not a fruit of the Spirit. 
It's not evidence of someone who's walking in the Spirit because the Spirit of God wants us to be gospel-minded. He wants us to be gospel-centered. He wants our lives to be revolving around Jesus Christ. Every false doctrine either minimizes the power of God or makes greater the power of man most of the time both. And that is not the mindset that the Spirit of God wants us to have. Paul talks about uh, envies. He talks about murders. He talks about drunkenness. But before he talks about that, something that I left out, he also talks about wrath, he talks about strife, and he talks about seditions. Seditions are conducts or manner of speech inciting people to rebel against the authority of a state or monarch. And that is a very uncomfortable thing to talk about in this country because uh, we all know about the, when we were here, you know, we know about the January 6th uh, riot that happened. I just talked to somebody about it last week at Capitol Hill uh, in January of last year. And the interesting thing about that is um, regardless of the intention as to why somebody might do what they do, again, this goes back to the fact that God has never changed regardless of anybody's motivation. Whenever we say, because especially during election seasons, much of the church likes to get political to each his own, is all I got to say about that, but we have to be conscious. Uh, we've got to know that there are lost people on both sides of the aisle. Whether they're a liberal or whether they're a conservative, your political status has, I'm sorry, it has little to nothing to do with your relationship with God. I read a story last year about a gentleman who started a church up north somewhere, a church that was totally based around conservative values and stuff like that. The reason why he built this church is just because he wanted a church for Trump supporters. That's what he said. And regardless of what you think about the last president, that's not why you build a church. You don't build a church for a president. That would be no better if I went out and built the church for Biden supporters. It would be no different because you don't go to church for your leader in this nation. You go to church for your spiritual leader. You go to church for God. I mean, my goodness. And people will put their whole identity around their political beliefs, and it is not of God because when you do that, you do things that you shouldn't do. And it's simply Bible. It is biblical. Church, this is what the Holy Ghost is saying through God's Word. That this promotion, this inciting of rebellion against any authority or state or monarch. I mean, these people did that thing and... You know, a lot of people believe that it wasn't Trump. I'm not getting into all that, but whoever these people were, they thought that they would go into the Capitol building and change something, whatever their idea was, the outcome of the election or just to make a politician. Whatever. Whatever they meant to do did not happen. And listen to me. The church's job is not to fight and rebel against our leaders. Jesus said our job is to pray for our leaders because God can do a work that you and I just can't. God has power over this nation that you and I just don't. Many people try to be so vocal to a government that doesn't even know they exist. I'm sorry, but God knows you exist. God knows you exist. Is that what I just said? 
Well, whatever. God knows you exist. And if you cry out to your government, big surprise, they're not always going to be there to help you out. But if you cry out to God, he's as close to you as the mention of his name. Call on Jesus for the leaders of this country. Paul talks about heresies, envying, murder. He talks about drunkenness. Drunkenness does not belong in the body of Christ. And it's a shame that we have more than one big denomination that promotes drinking as long as it's done modestly. And look, I understand the sentiment to that. And it is true, at least this is my stance on it, that the actual sin of partaking in alcohol is the actual drunken state. It's not the actual consumption. But here's the issue with that. Alcoholic beverages today are not like wine back in Jesus' time. That's just not the case. People make beer and wine today so that you can get drunk. It's not for any other purpose. That's why it is made today. It's with the end goal of its consumer to get drunk. And the fact it is all about money. Money, money, money. That's all it's about. That's all they care about. And for obvious reasons, it doesn't belong in the life of a child. But let me tell you this. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Why do you need alcohol easing your pain and defending what you want to do? You have God himself living inside of you. There's no need for alcohol in the life of a Christian. Paul talks about revilings, and I don't mean to hold you hostage. I'll shut up here in a minute. Paul talks about revilings. This refers to criticizing in an abusive or angrily insulting manner. And one example of that that I could give is, let's say that Sister Sue um, subs for a Sunday school class. The kids are too loud throughout the, and you know, they're so loud that the whole sanctuary hears what's going on. And I then approach Sister Sue and I yell at her. I call her names. I insult her intelligence and her character. And I've used her as an example before. I use her as an example because I know that Sister Sue won't get mad if I use her as an example. She does great things for this church. She's a blessing to us, isn't she? We love Sister Sue. Um, This is not somebody who is being led by the Spirit. Somebody like me in this illustration who just goes up to her and insults her in every way that I can. Insults her leadership abilities, things like this. The Bible says... That that is not somebody who is being led of the Spirit. Okay? This isn't just me being your little associate pastor talking. This is the Bible. And the Bible is a book not well read by most Christians. That's just the fact of the matter. Too many Christians think they can do whatever they want, and they can't. Because you and I, the Bible... It crosses every line, it dots every t- everything that you and I need to know about living for God. We can find it in the Bible. And there's an importance in reading your Bible. Reading your Bible does not get you to heaven, but God still gave you the Bible, so I guess it has its use, doesn't it? Read your Bible. And then Paul concludes in verse 21 by saying, Such like. Such like. Anything that's even similar to what I've listed out to you. In these past couple of verses. And what would anything like any of this be? Because this list of the fruit of the flesh, it seems to be pretty thorough, doesn't it? And I thought about it, and you know, I'm no scholar. I'm not as spiritually mature as some of you. But one thing that I noticed is that, uh, have you noticed uh, one thing most of these sins have in common? Is anger. Most of these sins these works of the flesh, the one thing that most of them at least have in common is anger. 
anger is an ungodly mentality. At least anger of the flesh. Like I said, there's a righteous anger and there's an ungodly anger. Um, I'm not trying to write the Bible here. I just want to say it might be a wise idea to never try to be angry, even if you think it's for a godly reason. Christians have just had a reputation of being a peaceful people. Um, and this is because at our godliest, we have been peaceful. We've been kind. We've been loving. It does not mean that we've compromised in our beliefs. But the best kind of Christians in history never have been known to be just belligerently angry, hateful people. And it's not even because, oh, the world's not going to listen to you if you're hate. No, it just, it's just because this is not who God wants us to be. This isn't who God wants us to be. This is not the lifestyle that the Holy Spirit is leading us to. So let me just say this as well. Just as the case was with your salvation, if your faith in Christ guaranteed your salvation and not your works, I think it's safe to say that your works are not going to cause you to lose your salvation. Um, salvation is just very faith-based. And works are not a cause of salvation. They're not a cause of someone losing their salvation. And if nothing else, this is just my opinion, but works are, I know for sure, an evidence of your salvation. Amen. What comes to mind is the natural process of the growth of a tree. And a tree is used as a metaphorical figure, analogy, whatever, Often in the Bible, in the first psalm, the righteous man who meditates on the law day and night is compared to a tree that's planted by the water, which leaf grows and does not wither. I mean, trees are just a common illustration that God uses in the Bible to mainly refer to a good, spiritually healthy uh, follower of God. And it's it's good because um, it all begins at the seed And the seed grows, the roots deepen, and from the roots comes the tree, and the tree bears the fruit. An apple tree does not produce oranges, it produces apples, and it's not told to, it cannot be rushed to do this. This is all just a very natural process. It's a natural thing that happens. Unless there's interference from an outside element to make the tree sick or infect the apple, it's just a thing that happens. The fruit does not, whenever a fruit is born or whatever you'd say, whenever there, a fruit is grown out of a tree, you don't just take the fruit and say, well, now that I have this one apple, I guess I can just go ahead and uproot the whole tree because it's fulfilled its purpose. No, it stays rooted. And you and I stay rooted in Christ. I put a post out on Facebook a, a few days ago because it's just the way Christianity is. Many people out there kind of act like we're between a rock and a hard place. We either just preach the gospel or we just live the gospel. It's almost like we're at a fork in the road. We either have to preach or we live for God. We're not. We're not stuck between a rock and a hard place. We preach the cross and we live the life that it gives us. Both. Both. We do both. It's not a tough decision that I have to make because the natural Christian lifestyle is one where I stay rooted in my faith in Christ and what he's done for me at Calvary 2,000 years ago. And the fruit 
the evidence of that is Christian living. I don't live for God to impress Him. I live for God because I'm a Christian. I live for God because the Holy Spirit gives me the desire and the ability to live for God. So there's the tree, and then there's the fruit. This is a totally natural process. And Paul says that evidence of living in the flesh, let me go ahead and reread all that we talked about. I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Paul would begin in verse 19, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revealings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. There is fruit to those who do not walk by faith in the Son of God, and this is the fruit of the flesh. It is evidence that somebody's faith is not where it ought to be. It is the evidence that somebody's faith is misplaced. But just as there is fruit of the flesh, there is also fruit of the Spirit. And Paul talks about this in verses 22 and 23. He says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no Law. So why the difference? Why does Paul go out of his way here to make the difference between the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit? The evidence of somebody under the dominion of their flesh and the evidence of somebody who is walking in the spirit. That can be really defined in the last three verses here. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. And I'm going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit uh, next week because it's something that needs to be dwelt on. But we need to know about the fruit of the flesh because in knowing what the flesh looks like, that helps us a lot. In identifying the fruit of the Spirit. It helps us understand the difference between somebody of the flesh and somebody who is truly of the Spirit. So again, Jesus dies. The Holy Spirit comes to live in our lives. We accept Him and His death on the cross. And the fruit, the evidence that we are a truly changed person is that we bear, we bring forth fruit, the evidence of the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us, God. Uh, Lord, I ask that you remind us all throughout this week the importance of what you gave to the Apostle Paul many, many centuries ago. Lord, I'm asking that you strengthen us today. I ask that you encamp your hand of protection over us until we gather together again. And God, I'm asking that Jesus Christ be glorified in our lives throughout this week, Lord. I understand that sometimes, Lord, we come to church and we expect a big shout fest, Lord. But sometimes you just want us to stand still and to learn from your word, God. 
because we have no purpose in proclaiming your word if we can't explain it to begin with. And we have no purpose explaining your word if we can't understand it to begin with. And Lord, we thank you for the revealing and illuminating power of your spirit as he leads us and guides us through understanding your word, God. Continue sanctifying us, God. Give us a greater reverence for you, Lord. And once again, Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us and all that you're going to do. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Amen.